Hello and welcome to Army of Crimes. I'm your host, Matt, and this is my other host, Dustin. And today we are going to be looking at The Eternals by Jack Kirby and the recent independent horror movie, The Witch, direct, written and directed by Robert Eggers. That is all accurate information, Matt. Yes, it is. Which one of these things would you like to discuss first? I have a whole... I have kind of a spiel on the on the witch, which I just watched last night. I watched it directly before going to bed. It's a good time to watch to watch which, the witch. Which was not perhaps the best decision. Did you get scared? Uh I was I was scared. We'll just talk about the witch then, I guess. We're yeah, just... let's let's just talk about the witch first. So the uh, witch is uh a technically just like an incredibly good movie as far as being well made like the music is great creating a sense of like foreboding and danger you get this interesting mix of claustrophobic close-up shots as well as like wide shots of this wilderness and where their little farm is located dark um black and gray both in sort of the way they look with the puritan clothing style and then just the really just like scary looking hansel and gretel forest yeah surrounding their cabin yeah, it's. Uh, I find it to be. I had seen this film before, and uh, so I rewatched it last night as well. And I uh, find it to be really effective. I think not only as a horror film, but I find it also kind of fascinating just as a film about these people being tested in terms of their religious faith and sort of the isolation of this family that's sort of grappling with their kind of like really extreme religious beliefs that sort of like govern like every aspect of their lives. So I, I did want to say as far as the dark foreboding forest, I remember there was one shot in particular, I don't know if you remember this, where there's the boy is like kind of like trying to like trudge through all of these like dense uh, sticks and, and tree branches and stuff. And the music is like really kicking in and it's sort of like struggling through this just like mass of like an evil like tangle of branches. Like there's some imagery in that uh, vein that's I think like extremely effective. I think the music, like you mentioned, does a lot too in terms of setting up this like mood of, you know, foreboding and death and evil. Kind of reminded me of, have you seen the uh, Lars von Trier film Antichrist? I actually have not. Well, um, well, that's a whole other thing that we won't get into. But as I recall, there's a, a tagline for the film or a line of dialogue in the film that says that nature is Satan's church. And it kind of also takes place in sort of an evil forest. And it kind of made me like think of that. Like once you venture into the woods, you're in, you know, an evil realm or a realm where man and, and godliness no longer has hold. Yeah, I think it's incredibly effective as a horror movie. It's interesting because there really isn't any jump scares where things are like leaping out of the background at you. It just creates this really unsettling atmosphere. And there's moments where you just know that something terrible is going to happen next. And you're just like staring at the screen, like waiting to see what would happen, like just in, in dread anticipation. <laughs> Like, you're talking about the part where he's crawling through the forest. In theory, you could shoot someone crawling through a forest, and it would not look dangerous or scary at all. But you have a person crawling through a forest, and it's like they're crawling through, like, some kind of hellscape or something. And you just know something absolutely terrible is going to happen to them. Yeah, and I think the uh, the spare editing really helps in the fact that the film will often hold 
on a shot without having to like cut around between a bunch of coverage, which I really like and I think does like an effective job of helping to build the foreboding. And like you say, it's not the kind of editing where you would like cut to a to a scare kind of thing, which is not I mean, which can also be effective in this kind of the more standard horror film editing. It's um almost edited more like you know, like a drama or like even like an art film. Like I definitely thought of um, both uh, Bergman and Carl Dreyer while watching this because they both also have made many extremely intense films about religious faith and about people sort of grappling with their religious faith. And movies with intense close-ups of people's yeah. faces. Yeah, like intense close-ups of faces that are kind of held for a uh, longer than expected period of time right it creates this like almost existential dread because you have people that really are trying to grapple with something that they have have not they do not have the tools or wherewithal to grapple with this it makes it very clear from the beginning of the film so this is not even close to a spoiler that they are in fact grappling with some kind of supernatural evil it is not in their heads there really right. is a supernatural evil it makes that clear like right from the beginning and I did not know that going into it because I don't try and read about stuff before I watch it. So going into this, I didn't know, is there really a witch? Is there not a witch? I mean, it's called The Witch. It's about Puritans. You don't really know. It makes it very clear that they are dealing with something supernatural. Their frame of reference is religion, and they're grappling with that the best they can. But they are really out of their element. They are in the depths here more than they even understand. Yeah. So there's this almost like they're lost at sea dramatically or thematically well they've chosen to isolate themselves from their uh fellow puritans i guess for reasons which are not entirely clear but seem to do with some sort of like a religious schism um like if this family's beliefs seem to be more severe than the other you know than their brethren so they've chosen to like isolate themselves out in the woods which obviously this ends up being a, a huge mistake. And it's interesting, too, because the film, like you said, it shows you right away that, that, yes, the evil forces that they're afraid of are, in fact, very real. And then it kind of, like, gives you a horror film from a Puritan perspective where these ideas of, like, uh, witches and, like, signing your name in the devil's book and these other kind of, like, uh, folklore ideas of witches and the devil are in fact all true so it's like giving you a horror film like as if it was almost like made by a puritan right i had the idea while watching that if it wasn't so obviously inappropriate it would be a tremendous movie to show when i teach because i've taught the crucible before in high school and obviously you wouldn't show this at a school because it's really not appropriate for that but it does a tremendous job of showing the mindset of the characters like it's a movie from the perspective of the characters in it it's basically like what if their worldview was 100 percent accurate and that's how the world really was so i think it does an actual absolutely tremendous job showing that because the idea that i think a lot of these groups have and i keep calling them puritans someone is going to come and yell and tell us that they're pilgrims or something yeah i'm not sure exactly and the film doesn't spend a lot of time on this really delineating like what denomination or what group they really belong to. But it was common for them to believe that essentially the whole world was wrong. So Satan controls all sorts of things 
and they're really all by themselves against evil. Everyone else is evil. Everyone else is wrong. Satan controls all kinds of things, you know, and they're just on their own. And then the movie makes that more stark by having them literally be on their own. I never saw it as the dad or them being more severe. It just, I assumed it was some sort of, you know, religious orthodoxy versus heresy. It's probably some kind of, I mean, they would have schisms over essentially very minor things that almost just would come down to personality conflicts. But yeah, he chooses to exile himself or he gladly exiles himself. Yeah, and his family. And though I would will also say that in talking about the film from like a Puritan point of view or a pilgrim point of view, that the the family themselves do are not great like representatives of religious faith because they also exacerbate the their their problems of what's going on through their own hypocrisy and through their own suspicions of like turning on and accusing each other. So it's not like they're all you know, examples of like pious virtue because they basically end up damning and dooming each other by like there's a scene early on where the father mentions that he stole this like heirloom item of like a silver cup from his wife to sell. And then later the wife accuses the main character, the daughter, uh, Thomason, of stealing it. And the father doesn't like speak up. And it's like, I think, an example early on of the fact that even though these people put up this pious front, that in fact, they're not like the perfect uh, Christians that they want everyone to think. Well, I don't think anyone is. I think that's just I think that's just emblematic of any religious community, which is not even a slight on religion. I think it's just very, a very human nature thing. Yeah, I guess to have a very strong sort of conflict between because they pray a lot. They talk about the Bible a lot but they fall short and they talk about how they fall short because it's very much in that mind of we're all sinners. So they're just, I think they're just in the, they're in the mix of it. They're in the, they're in the muck of it. They know what the, they know all the scripture, but yeah, they struggle to do the right thing a lot of the time. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that like, if you were to look at this from an odd angle, you could almost say that it's like a film that sort of like justifies their behavior and justifies like witch trials by saying like yes you do need to be severe because you know witches are real but in fact their you know hypocrisy and their you know mortal failings end up making the situation worse and end up driving one of the characters to you know to like witchcraft or to evil right that actually leads me into the spiel that i was going to go on which was that i think it's it basically the premise of this movie. Well, to answer your question, if they had actually been super religious and pious, they would still be screwed because they can't actually handle the supernatural things that are coming at them. Right. It sets but... up a very weird thing, I think, with witches, and this is with historical witchcraft trials, accusations of witchcraft. Is witchcrafts, uh, witches are almost omnipotent. I mean, they can change the weather, they can cause crops to fail, they can kill people with their minds, essentially, by inflicting sickness, they can appear to people in dreams, create hallucinations or illusions. So witches are almost all-powerful. I mean, there's very li- little limit to what they can do. The only thing they can't make you do is they can't force you, you know, to sign the book, but they can screw with you enough that you will do it because you feel like you have no other options or something. So there's, I don't think religious faith would have saved them if they actually were the perfect quote-unquote perfect Christians because witches are so powerful. Which leads me, my my point was that the basically the premise of this movie is what if witches were real? And it goes through and shows what the world would look like, I guess, from the perspective of people who believed witches were real, right? 
But I feel like on some level, isn't that kind of a weird question to ask? Because as you mentioned, there are actual witch trials where people were actually burnt at the stake or hanged in American witch trials for being accused of witches. So on some level, I feel like it was kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird premise for a movie. There probably would have been a lot of people disappointed, but I think it would almost have been more interesting if there was a movie where there was no witches and you have basically the same sort of situations happening and they all turn on each other and we, the audience, know that there is no such thing as witches. But, like, haven't we seen that story already many times? Like, isn't that the Crucible? I mean, that is the Crucible, but the Crucible is also, like, this political analogy for the Red Scare. um, Or not for the Red Scare, for um, the Blacklist and stuff. That's true. And it has this, this thing has something going for it that something like the Crucible doesn't, which is sort of the griminess and, like, the dirty, like, grittiness of it. Right. But on some level, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. Uh, for them to be like, oh, what if witches were real? I feel like that's kind of weird because it is a thing that innocent people were literally killed for being accused of. Right. Yeah, I to me, the sort of like escape hatch out of that is the fact that, you know, the, the moral failings of the family and the, their hypocrisies as um, religious people is what ends up helping to doom them. So it's So I feel like to me, that's kind of where it gets out of that viewpoint. Like, for example, and the father himself talks about this, but his pride in separating himself from the community, you know, helps to, like, damn them. And the uh, the mother is, like, suspicious of her daughter's sexuality and thinks that she's, like, trying to seduce her brother and her father. And that ends up, like, clouding her judgment. And then, like, the father, like, steals things and, like, lies to his wife. So to me, it's kind of like, the you know failings and the hypocrisies of sort of allegedly pious family helps to like damn them and so in my mind that's like kind of the escape hatch that it has out of just like basically endorsing like a puritan worldview i guess to me the escape hatch was just the fact that it labels itself as a folk tale it says like this is a folk story so it's like saying a ghost story Right. We know folk tales are not real. We know ghost stories aren't real. But it did make me I felt it was odd because the film itself, even though I think you're right in that it's trying to sort of show you the whole messy thing and all the ins and outs. On some level, it does endorse some kind of patriarchal worldview. See, I would say that it in fact does not because it shows how, you know, in the world of the film, the patriarchal worldview that the characters um, exhibit is what ends up driving, uh, you know, one of the characters to sign their name in the book. So it's, I don't think it's endorsing the worldview sh- so much as awful that that view is and those, in the way that the, you know, the family treats each other, it kind of like drives them apart and drives them to, to evil. Yeah, I think that's true. I, it's kind of reminds me of like a Sam Peckinpah movie where the message on some level is supposed to be that violence is bad, but there's also like a lot of violence in it because in this, you have to ask yourself too, what is the one character that the devil can't corrupt is the dad. The dad is the character that he has to get rid of because he can't corrupt him. He can corrupt everyone, but the father and it's the father's bad choices that pulled the rest of the family along. So I I think it's kind of like, I I, I think what what you're saying is what they're going for, but I feel like, by diving into that worldview, you'd sort of inadvertently play into some of that. 
Yeah, I mean, that is probably unavoidable, but I do feel like that the film is smart smart enough in the way that it kind of sidesteps that. In my opinion, it sounds like that maybe you uh, do not agree completely. I feel like it just starts to get kind of murky once you're that far into that. It's Like I said, it's technically, it's a tremendously made movie. I mean, like I said, I watched it right before I tried to go to sleep, uh, and it did make that process more difficult. We, we won't uh, get into it. Uh, in in detail, but what did you think of the ending? I find the ending of this film to be enormously sort of brave and really uh, haunting and really like kind of terrifying and really memorable. I would agree with all of that, and I but I unfortunately see this is where I have to throw another quibble in is I think it circles back around to what I was just saying, and this sort of defeats the whole premise of which craft trials in real life or witchcraft witch hunts accusing people of being witches is they can basically do anything so nobody ever really has a chance against them so if they can successfully screw with everyone or drive people insanity i mean there's no way you could stop them really so it it's um yeah no i think it's it's a very good ending and i was like really struck by it and like the way it's done is tremendous so I, I agree that it's a really good ending. I, I feel like the, the thematically you get into that weird area, and this really isn't even the movie's fault, just choosing to tackle something about witches and using you know, historical information about the things witches were accused of doing, which was damaging livestock, um, damaging crops, causing sickness, that sort of thing, is there's really no way you can stop them. Well, sure, because when you invent witchcraft as a boogeyman, you can just use it to blame on everything. Right, basically. The bad guy is a wizard and no one else, and there's no other wizards. So if the bad guy wins or doesn't win, I mean, there's really nothing you can do to stop them. So, yeah, I think it is a good ending. I feel like, again, it thematically gets a little weird when you're essentially making a movie from the perspective of a Puritan. And, yes, you do show how hypocritical their whole system is, right, because it is a patriarchal family, but the dad is really putting them all in a terrible situation and the family members are all turning on each other and that sort of thing. I do feel like thematically it gets weird, and I guess that's just a complaint against, maybe against a lot of horror movies like ghost stories or haunted house stories, when there's really no limit to what the enemy can do or what the person hunting you can do. Is it... It's like in a horror film where normally the person who says that ghosts aren't real would be correct. And it turns out that, of course, in, in horror films, they're always wrong. To wrap up this discussion of The Witch, I just have one question for you, which is, would thou, like... To live deliciously. Yeah, Black Philip is pretty tremendous. I, I would I would take yeah, Black Philip is a good villain. It's interesting too because it plays with the idea of like children perceptions. Because the yeah. children say things and you're like, oh they're just kids, blah blah blah. And then once the movie goes on, you're like, wait a second, are they Are they actually like have given themselves to the devil or are they just being stupid children and saying things for attention? Which, again, goes back to the weird, the whole concept of witches is weird because during, I mean, European witch trials, you literally have children being sentenced to death for admitting to having, like, sexual intercourse with Satan. And it's just completely bonkers. So if we live in a world, if we're going to accept that the movie takes place in the world where everything is bonkers, then anything is possible. I mean, it makes a really good horror movie because you're living in a horrible world, I guess, is, is maybe a way of putting it. That is definitely a way of putting it.
so now we are gonna shift gears and talk about shift gears slightly ever so slightly into a comic book series from the late 70s called the eternals so i'm gonna give i'll give a quick rundown of what the so the of what the eternals is this like i said it's from the late 70s it was published by marvel comics it was written and drawn by jack kirby and it is about oh boy what is it about it is about I believe the blurb is if you liked Chariot of the Gods, you'll love the Eternals. Yeah, it's it's riffing on this sort of like ancient aliens ideas that Jack Kirby had found fascinating throughout his career. And so essentially it's about these space gods who return to Earth who are called the Celestials. And they are there to cast judgment on the wiseness of the human situation because it turns out that they in fact invented the human race in ancient history and they are now going to decide if the human race is worthy of continuing to exist and back then they also invented these two other sort of like related to human species called the deviants and the eternals and the deviants are sort of like monsters and the eternals are these immortal superpowered beings that live on a mountaintop and it's explained that the human myths throughout history of devils and demons or perhaps witches are due to the existence of the deviants and our mythology about ancient gods and goddesses and heroes like hercules are due to the existence of the eternals so the the comic is about the celestials returning to Earth to cast judgment on the human race and the deviants and the eternals basically coming out of hiding. In my mind, this is an amazing and awesome premise. And when I started reading this, I was 100% on board. Now, given the whole comic history thing, this is after Jack Kirby leaves Marvel, goes to DC, creates the fourth world, among other things, and then goes back to Marvel. Yeah. I was going to say it's his third crack at the super secret race that lives among us. Because, oh, sure. Because in some ways it's similar to the Inhumans, who are also experimented on by aliens, who are like Fantastic Four supporting characters and live in a secret city somewhere on Earth. And in some ways I think it's very similar to the Fourth World, who are like god figures, or like space gods. Yes. And then And then you have the Eternal. So it's kind of his third crack at a similar concept. And it's perhaps worth mentioning that even though this was published by Marvel Comics, it was actually not intended to be part of the larger Marvel universe of characters that kind of came later through editorial uh, fiat. At the time, it was, he intended it to just be its own standalone story. So one of the best things I would say about the Eternals is the art. Oh yeah, this is Jack Kirby um, kind of like at the, uh, I mean, arguably sort of like at the the peak of his creative powers as a as an artist. Now, obviously, we're trying to talk over the internet to you about art that you can't see. So I will try and post a bunch of the images, but the art is amazing. So you've got the design on the Celestials, who are now part of the Marvel Universe as a whole. They're really the only thing from this that successfully jumped into the rest of the Marvel Universe because they're in, for example, the Guardians of the Galaxy 
movies, among other places. So the design on the Celestials is great. They're the giant multicolored space gods with different shaped heads and hands, and they're covered in intricate designs. Yeah, they're like thousands of feet tall wearing these crazy suits of armor that are like covered in sort of like Incan uh, Geometric patterns. Yeah. And every one of the Eternals looks... I mean, they all have these wild costumes, and then they're all sort of vaguely based on mythological characters. And then you have the deviants, and every the part of the deviants thing is they're essentially unstable shapeshifters, so they all have different shapes. And you have the deviant city underground, which is like sunken Atlantis, which yeah, is great. They, they live at the bottom of the ocean. So if you've ever thought that Jack Kirby should do a thing with thousand-foot space gods wearing multicolored battle armor and just have the whole thing be filled with vistas of huge ruins and underwater cities. Then the Eternals is definitely up your alley. Yeah. So I, and it, I found all that stuff. Great. Like the part where the celestial actually attacks the underwater city. That is just incredibly awesome. Yeah. It's, you have this like thousand thousand. It's like, I think they're said somewhere that they're 2000 feet tall and you can just see this giant hand like reaching up over these like skyscraper buildings and sort of coming down and just like crushing this city that's underwater and it's like starting to flood everywhere. And they're like desperately trying to like, there's a double splash page of the deviants desperately trying to like fight back against it in vain. Yeah. You know what also I would say is that this, um, it has so many like great characters too. And like great concepts, like every, you know, and there's so many great like double splash pages. Like as you're reading it, you get kind of giddy when you get to the end of a page and that character is like, look out because you know that when you turn the page, it's going to be some like insanely wild, crazy image. For example, there's an issue called the astronauts where do you remember this one? Yes. Yeah. Refresh my memory though. So in the astronauts, there's this double splash page of this giant spaceship that's like looks like this like weird like red like bullet thing and it turns out that this is in fact an enormous bomb and these three deviant astronauts are going to pilot it pilot it on a suicide mission to blow up the celestial spaceship so it's like as you turn the page you see this wild crazy spaceship that's actually like an enormous bomb on a suicide mission yeah there's a great splash page too of double page spread of the celestial standing ready to pass judgment on the earth and he literally has the program to destroy the planet on his thumb so it's like a literal thumbs up or thumbs down yeah and he's holding his thumb, out his, his thumb literally casts the the thing that that will destroy the planet yeah he has this like circuitry drawn on his on his thumb on his hand where he'll like cast judgment on the human race one of the things that I thought was interesting about the Eternals is it starts off and you say the Eternals are the gods. Okay, they're the good guys. The Deviants are the demons or what have you, and they're the bad guys. But once you get into it, it actually gets a lot more morally gray because we see that the Deviants, in their own way, have a very hard lot in life. They live in a sort of authoritarian state that has an emphasis on like genetic cleansing and different kinds of nasty things, but they're not inherently evil. There's no reason why some Deviants can't be good guys, and there are you know, deviant characters. And similarly with the Eternals, we do eventually meet Eternals that are evil. The Celestials themselves are not really good or evil. They're space gods and they're creators. But on some level, they seem they seem like bad guys because why, why are they going to blow up the whole planet? I mean, so it, there's actually a le degree of moral ambiguity 
once you get into the story that you really wouldn't have expected when you first started. Because when you first started, you've got the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy who can shoot beams from his eyes and fly around. He's basically like Superman or something. And you're like, oh, okay, he's the hero. And he is a hero character, but it, get, it does get a lot more complex. And you do meet a lot of other interesting characters. There's deviants who are heroes, like I said, and there's evil Eternals. And in fact, one of my complaints of it is some of the characters you meet first are actually the more boring characters. Such as, are you talking about Icarus? Yeah, so like I could leave Icarus behind, I think, for sure. I don't know if you do need Icarus. He's, like, he's kind of like your generic hero character. You're a good guy. And maybe that's the intent, is that he's like an archetype. But if you look at Reject or Caracas, the deviant heroes. Yeah, those guys are great. Yeah, there's Athena, uh, who uh, is an eternal. And she basically goes down to the deviant city with this deviant guy named Crow. That it was, and it's kind of said that they used to have a romantic relationship back in the day, like thousands of years ago or whatever. And she rescues these two deviants. And one of them looks like a, an attractive human male. And his name is Reject. And he's just like a mindless killing machine. And then there's this giant like red monster guy named Krakus, who's actually like really polite and like really smart. And they like kind of leave together and then have like an, an adventure. Yeah, and he also folds in some of those 50s like monster comics thing, because that's definitely where the design on Krakus reminds me of. Yeah. Well, he's kind of like the thing too, right? He's similar to the thing, yeah. Yeah, those guys are great. And then there's like a forgotten deviant or eternal who like lives under the city, right? That, that and gets, that's like... another great character. And then you see some of that moral ambiguity because he's essentially on permanent probation for help, trying to help the humans too much. Yeah, yeah. And then there's like uh, Cersei. Is of course an eternal named after the mythological character who is sort of like a kind of like a trickster. And there is another trickster named Sprite. And there's like Mercury. In character, because their first introduction to him is that he's going to masquerade as the devil to start like World War Three. So you're like, oh, he's the bad guy. Are you talking about Crow? Yeah. Yeah. He uh, is basically trying to trick the humans into going to war against the Celestials. By, yes, by looking like Satan and, yeah, getting the humans all riled up. Because it's said that the Deviants once went to war against the Celestials and lost. Right. And they used to rule the Earth and use the humans as slaves. Those dang humans. So, yeah, I love the Eternals. I think it's great. I'm, I feel disappointed, as I say this in the year 2019, that they've never really been used in the rest of the Marvel Universe, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. They never got turned into something weird. It seems weird because I, I feel like there's a lot of lesser Kirby concepts that get mined until you hit bedrock and there's nothing left. And for whatever reason, the Eternals are largely left alone. And like I said, maybe that's a blessing in disguise. And of course, I'm saying this in the year 2019. By the time someone is listening to this, you know, with our post-singularity uploaded brains living inside a server on Mars... There could be 27 Eternals movies or something, because apparently they are going to adapt a movie. So who yes. knows? Yeah. But I always thought it was weird they didn't use the Eternals more because some of the characters are so great and they're ostensibly living in the Marvel Universe. But, like, why would you want someone who is not Jack Kirby to do this? This is such, like, a Kirby thing. It doesn't really seem... And once you fold them into the Marvel Universe, they don't really make all that much sense because... In the Marvel Universe, you do actually have Thor and Hercules, like, exist. 
So like once you put them in there where the gods actually do exist, it doesn't really make all that much sense. Yeah, it's sort of nebulous how that would work. You mentioned that Marvel forced them to be in the in the Marvel universe. I noticed they mentioned Nick Fury in an early issue. Yes. So it is. does it does seem to be in the Marvel universe. I guess maybe it's at a nebulous time. Maybe it's before all the superheroes came well, about because obviously there's celestials rampaging around the earth and you know the Avengers don't swoop in or anything. Well, later you know, the low point of the series, and I believe this was also an editorial fiat, is there's like two issues where they are spent like battling the Incredible Hulk. But then it's actually said in the comic that this is a robot created to look like the Marvel Comics character, the Incredible Hulk. And then the, the robot gets like infused with cosmic power and they spend like two issues or whatever, like fighting it. So in the comic itself, it says that Marvel comics are a thing like it does not, you know, it's not meant to like, I think that was Kirby's way of trying to make Marvel happy by putting the Hulk in it, but while also having his own way by writing like the Hulk doesn't exist in this world. This is like based off the comic book character. Right. But he mentions Nick Fury by name. in like, Yeah. Nick Fury, Nick Fury is mentioned, and but I mean, like, like, yeah, this comic makes a lot more sense and works a lot better on its own. And I don't it know. does. It does. Um, so when I'm when I'm saying that, I guess that they use more. I don't necessarily mean that they could all get stuck in the Avengers. I guess. And like you said, maybe it's better that nobody tried to ape Kirby. I know there's a 12 issue Eternals miniseries too. Um, Neil Gaiman's Eternals miniseries is actually pretty interesting with uh, some good John Romita Jr. art, but that takes us somewhat far afield. I believe some of the Eternals actually have been in the Avengers. Before. I believe Cersei has been in the Avengers. I'm not. I know she's been in the Avengers. I don't remember if anyone else has, but. Yeah, I mean, to my mind, this would have just worked best if they would have just let Kirby uh, finish the story because it doesn't really, it got canceled and it doesn't really wrap up most of the major plot lines, unfortunately. Um, so to my mind, this would have been better if it would have just been its own self-contained thing and they would have just let him finish it. Right. As, no, as I think definitely if they let him to, to see where it was going. I was going to say, it also reminds me of his 2001 A Space Odyssey adaptation, actually. Yeah, it is very reminiscent of that because that's also about these like space gods seeding human life on Earth. It's kind of a shame because The Eternals is so good as a comic series, especially like the first half, that then you just see like Marvel editorial sticking their stupid hands in it and then canceling it. And it's just sort of like this unfinished masterpiece but it's it's definitely i would i mean it's it's for what it is for what we have of it it is uh superb it's like every page you turn there's just like more wild creativity and more ideas and more just like beautiful extremely like kirby-esque spaceships and force fields and just insanely uh like beautiful vistas of battles and ancient cities and so on and so forth yeah i think it compares quite well to the fourth world which has a much better name recognition as being a sort of similar concept i think the only thing the fourth world can definitely hang over it is probably having dark side as the villain um if we're going to compare the two and we don't have to i guess but the the eternals compares very favorably to the much better known fourth world like i said i think the fourth world has better villain uh dark side apocalypse anti-life equation that kind of thing but the eternals has perhaps better 
designs, better art on the celestials and all that other stuff you were mentioning, the ancient aliens things and the, the vistas, the ancient cities, sunken Atlantis, all that. Yeah, I mean, the villain in the Eternals is uh, the celestial who's just this, like, he's sort of the, in some, well, not even, I mean, in some ways they're the antagonist, but he's just like this un- indifferent, omnipotent God who stands on Earth waiting to, you know, pass judgment. It's like God just sending an email saying, I'm going to blow up the Earth in 50 years, and you can't do anything about it? Based, well, I mean, he's deciding whether to do it based on his own criteria that no one else really has any influence over as far as we can tell. Right, it's very, it's very ominous either way. Perb, which was, what was your favorite favorite issue or favorite character? I think the one that really stands out and is kind of an art, just the art, an art thing, is when the Celestial attacks the underwater city, Lemuria. My favorite characters would probably be Reject and Caracas, though. So, like, when we first go to the Deviant City with Crow and Thena, and you see all the different um, Deviant, like, the mut- mutations... And they have this like authoritarian um, battle arena, almost. I mean, it's like a fascist state or something. It's. I like yeah. that whole stretch. I mean, it kind of just gets better as it goes on, and then it kind of fizzles out at the end. Yeah, the issue that you're talking about is uh, number ten, called Mother. It says the city that died twice. I really like the. Uh, well, the one that right after that is kind of fun, called The Russians Are Coming where you have a celestial that appears in Siberia, and it's like the Soviet general trying to decide what to do. I also really like the uh, the annual, um, which is where Athena, Reject, and Krakus are trying to hunt down this like evil wizard guy, and he keeps summoning uh, historical figures to like wreak havoc, um, right. such as Attila the Hun and Jack the Ripper. And they have to like fight these figures that definitely gave me a 50s like atlas era comic vibe like time travel uh there's a monster at the end that they fight like a deviant from the past yes the final guy that they have to fight is tutanax the mountain mover there's a lot of great like villains in here because then later you have i believe his name is dramadan the brain snatcher and he like mind controls people Anyway, I think uh, we're both in agreement that The Eternals is a fantastic, wonderful comic that was unfortunately a sort of unfinished masterpiece. Do you have a recommendation there, friend and brother Matthew? I mean, my recommendation would be to read The Eternals. Uh, for a second recommendation, I would say The Eternals, written by Neil Gaiman, the six-issue miniseries. I thought that was kind of a fun update on it. I have not read that. Is it how similar, you know, is it in a similar vein, or is it kind of just like totally rethinking the idea? So the kind of the premise of it is, by this point, we all know The Eternals live in the Marvel Universe, and it sort of asks the question why no one remembers the time when the Celestials stomped all over the planet. And whatever happened to the 50-year judgment. Oh, okay. so it actually kind of starts as a bit of a mystery. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because once you fold this into the Marvel Universe, then it's like, wait, what happened to the Celestials deciding whether or not to destroy the human race? So I would recommend that. If 
Um, obviously, I would recommend The Eternals too, but The Eternals by Neil Gaiman with, like I said earlier, some good John Romita Jr. art. Yes, The Eternals by Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. Matt, there are two authors. Matt, Apology, apologies to all artists in the world. On behalf of all artists in the world, even though I am not an artist, I accept your apology. My recommendation would be another Jack Kirby comic that came out after The Eternals, after he finally left Marvel and DC for the final time, after going back and forth between them repeatedly. He worked for a couple of independent publishers in the 80s and published a graphic novel called Silver Star, which I find to be really fascinating. And it's about this kind of like super soldier who was genetically engineered to survive nuclear war. And he has sort of like an, an opposite, like evil kind of character as well. So it's kind of got that similar kind of like a Kirby sort of like uh, epic sci-fi kind of vibe to it. And it's uh, available in a, it's in print, I believe, currently from, I think Image might have bought the rights to it or something, but it's a standalone graphic novel. So no more, uh, you know, Marvel canceling the series halfway before it's over, thankfully. Um, and it's kind of like a crazy sci-fi yarn from the King of Comics himself. And I would recommend it. I think it's, for whatever reason, I guess, because it's not a DC or Marvel thing, people don't, it doesn't seem to get a lot of buzz, but I actually thought that it is uh, really well done. Go off, King. Uh, that's our show. Website is armyofcrime.com where you keep a master list of all the topics and recommendations if you want to buy any of them because we made them sound great you could do so through our link uh, which is a tremendous and easy way of helping pay for our humble expenses you can find us on twitter i am at army of crime and dustin is at at dustin 44444 and remember kids as black philip would say always live deliciously It was a pretty witchy experience.